There's a saying that I heard first probably 25 years ago or so that, that goes, the beatings will continue until morale improves, which is not only contradictory, but funny as well. I, I do get a kick out of that. Now, beatings is, is the, not the first version that I heard. The way I first heard it was, the floggings will continue until morale improves. And floggings brings to mind the uh, British Navy during the era of tall-masted ships, you know. And you can just see a captain applying this to his crew. The floggings will continue until your morale improves. That's the image I should leave you with, but of course I had to, to go and research the origins of this saying. It does go back to a navy, but not to the British Navy. It does not go back to, as some people have thought, to Captain Bly of the uh, Mutiny on the Bounty fame of, of the ship Bounty. It does not go back to Captain Bly. It, what, it in fact goes back to the U.S. Navy, and it's not an old quote. Well, it's not an old quote. If you can remember 1961 as well as I do, okay? However, that was 61 years ago. It's like telling my eight-year-old self in 1961 that 1900 was not that long ago, okay? The same number of years. Is that a scary thought or what? 1900, you know, when there were no airplanes, when cars were a novelty. Sliced bread was still 25 years in the future. <laughs> I, I love that. Niels brought that up. He was doing a blog on the World Series when the Chicago Cubs got into it. And he pointed out that the Chicago Cubs hadn't won a World Series since Chevrolet was a car company I'm, or Cadillac and that it was 17 years before sliced bread. So just, just an aside, now you know. So I guess I won't say it's not an old quote, but in 1961 it was printed as a one-panel cartoon in the U.S. Navy publication all hands. And it proved very popular. They reprinted it every five years for they might still be doing it. It was originally the original of the saying was all liberty is cancelled until morale improves. And if you know anything about the Navy liberty is their way of saying shore leave. So they've been on a ship. They've gone from San Francisco to Japan or China and they've been stuck on a boat. Well, surely it has been canceled until morale improves. In 1988, floggings arrived. It was changed. Somebody called it, it the floggings will continue. In 1989, it was the beatings will continue. And they're still having new ones that I won't get into. But, so what you may ask, does this information have to do with the passage we'll look at today. Well, nothing, as it turns out, because I didn't get that far. But I can't waste an opening, and I, what can I say? We'll get it next week. We'll get to it next week. We'll see that although the beatings probably didn't raise the apostles' morale, they probably did so for the Sanhedrin. So at least somebody got something out of the beatings. 
as I say, that's for another day. So last week, we covered Acts 5, 21 through 25, which goes, Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, and all the senate of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out, them being the apostles. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So how much worse can it get for the Sanhedrin and the leaders of Israel because we know no matter how bad things are they can always get worse you know I'm usually very optimistic about things I broke a scaffold probably 40 years ago up here my first year in Lake Arrowhead broke a scaffold we were at the three floor mark fell 30 feet I broke everything down my left side starting with my clavicle and all my ribs I'm laying on the ground and my partner, building partner, kicks his feet and moves a little and sits up and I say, oh, well, this could have been worse. And he said, this could have been a lot better. (laughs) So so what can I say? I'm an optimistic fellow. So those who had already gone to bring the apostles from the public jail to this uh, Sanhedrin's chamber are now sent to the temple to find the apostles and get the men to accompany them to the leadership. And now we're into the new section of study. Verse 26 says, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. There is a truism about bullies, which uh, the temple police certainly were, and we covered that last week, and that is that they can only bully someone until he fights back. Bullies generally don't like to be hit. There is a reason why, why every dictator in the world has removed guns from its citizens, from Adolf Hitler to Mussolini to Mao Zedong to Pol Pot to Ceausescu, just to name a few. Because an unarmed citizenry cannot fight back. Our founding fathers knew this well. The Second Amendment was not written to protect us from deer. They knew who the enemy was and is. So why did the temple police not use force on the apostles? They were afraid of the people. They were afraid of being stoned. As the scripture says, remember... Where were the apostles found? They were preaching to the people. They probably had a huge crowd. As I pointed out last week, the city of Jerusalem was already at least 10% Christian, if not 25%. The temple police were greatly outnumbered, and yes, if they moved against the apostles, they were in danger of being stoned. Stoning the police would have been a popular event. And by popular, I mean of the populace. It would have been 
a popular move against unpopular people. This allusion to stoning shows that the people have a better sense of who Jesus is. The temple police got away with it once, uh, and the Sanhedrin, with killing Jesus. This was not going to happen again in Jerusalem. So no force was used to bring the apostles to the council. Indeed, none was needed, as the apostles were anxious to preach to the authorities again. Remember, the apostles did not break out of jail. An angel broke them out of jail. We don't even know if the apostles particularly wanted to go out of jail, but the angel broke them out of jail and said, go, stand in the temple and preach. So they were taken without force, no beatings, because the temple police knew the beatings could wait until everyone was behind closed doors. They didn't have to do it in front of the people in the uh, temple square. They would be behind closed doors soon enough. And beaten, the apostles would be. And this would be just the first persecution they would face. As the church grew and became stronger, the attacks would be ratcheted up. John MacArthur points out that a powerful church provokes a hostile reaction from the satanic world system. If Satan is indeed the god of this world, he does not like a powerful church. Successful churches make waves. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and so shall the apostles find out. Verse 27 through 28a say, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Now it's said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I'm not saying this uh, Sanhedrin was insane, but it is clear that it has been a long time since they had been concerned with doing God's will. I've pointed out before that the uh, Sadducees who were made up uh, Jerusalem's leadership were so secular as not to be even Jewish anymore. But truthfully, the scribes and the Pharisees were no better. They made their living off of the church, not from doing God's will. They were so far from removed from doing God's will that they could not recognize it when it was right in front of them with the apostles. Now the high priest begins listing the charges against the apostles. The first is that the apostles had been charged not to teach in this name. And you will note that the high priest would not even say Jesus' name. Just don't preach in this name. Continuing on to verse 28b, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now, this filling up of Jerusalem, the other version, see, uh, oh, this filling of Jerusalem, it's like filling to overflowing or to bursting. It's filling up a teacup to where it's going to spill out. 
And verse 28 completes the passage, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this charge was true. This is exactly what the apostles intended. Daryl Bach, one of the commentators, and a very good one that I read every week for these messages, says, the idiom, his blood upon us, is to be responsible for one's death. This charge undercuts the leadership's authority to uphold and represent righteousness. If they are the ones who are responsible for Jesus' death, they have no righteousness. The apostles intended to bring this man's blood upon them. This charge is true, and of this they're guilty. For until the council repented of this sin, they could not be saved, and salvation is what the apostles were preaching. Now, the Sanhedrin feared that the apostles were calling for divine vengeance with their condemnation, that they were calling on God to strike down the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership, which might have, not might have, which was justified, but was not the aim of the apostles. Anyway, that's the second charge, but there's another charge. You'll notice it has not been brought up, okay? Now, what time is it now? It's not that late in the morning. The Jewish authorities have just discovered that the apostles are gone from jail. And yet, they're not jailed. They're not charged with jailbreaking. That's not one of the offenses they've committed. And this is where our friend Beatty, uh, who was 7th century, 16, uh, 600s, comes in. He says, the high priest must have forgotten about the jailbreaking. <laughs> okay? Pretty hard. I, th- I think he was being a little bit funny there myself. Uh, because I don't think the high priest could have possibly forgotten about the jailbreaking. Peter responds to the first of the Sanhedrin's charges in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men, which is the same answer as was given before. But now the answer means, We must obey God. And that the council does not. They do not obey God. As to the second charge of bringing Jesus' blood on them, the apostles answer in the next verse, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. The apostles plead, in effect, guilty. Jesus' blood is on the Sanhedrin, they say, the leadership of the Jews, because the Sanhedrin killed Jesus, hanging him on a tree, the most shameful death that could be dealt out. They say that the God of our fathers raised Jesus, and appealing to the God of our fathers, the apostles show the council that they identify as Jews. So they're not different people. They say the God of our fathers raised Jesus up. We're one of you. And that by raising Jesus from the dead, someone is on the right side of the situation and someone 
was on the wrong side of the situation. Christian faith does not contradict Judaism, but rather fulfills it. And the raising of Jesus from the dead fulfilled the Jewish mission, to tell you the truth. Now the apostles bring the good news, the gospel, to the leaders of the Jews. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is leader and savior. The leader refers to leader of the Jews. Savior is, as you know, savior of man. He's exalted to God's right hand. Ligonier Ministry says this declaration would be understood by the Sanhedrin as a reference to the resurrection. Such an exaltation by God would make the resurrected Jesus equal with God. And this exaltation means that Jesus' death does not have to remain on Israel or the Sanhedrin. You know, God's forgiveness and man's repentance is all that's needed. And it's all that's needed for the Sanhedrin at this point. Yes, they killed Jesus. They hung him on a tree. They wanted to humiliate him as much as possible. And yet, forgiveness was still possible. And all they had to do was repent. And Jesus and God would forgive them. The apostles finished their defense... And their sermon, which this is, in verse 32, they say, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice that in verse 32 through 33, all the persons of the Trinity are invoked. We have the God of our fathers, which is Jehovah God, raised Jesus and exalted him to his right hand, identifying Jesus as God. And in verse 32, the apostles are witnesses to all this. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, all identified as God in these two verses. And at that presentation... The Sanhedrin and all the leaders of the Jews from highest to lowest in Jerusalem fall on their faces and beg for forgiveness of God for all their trespasses up to and including killing the Son of God. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Wow, Wow, I didn't see that one coming, you know? What a shock. Because I live in the world that I do, I know that this is a perfectly understandable reaction to godly Christians in Satan's world. It's the same today. Uh, Even the once Christian-friendly United States, and I'm not going to say Christian because I don't believe it ever was, but Christian-friendly, United States uh, would now like we Christians put it gently, to go away, okay? Gosh, even when I was growing up, I would hear that, you know, keep your Christianity in church. Don't bring it to the public square. It's gotten a little bit bolder now, as you all know. Many on the 
intolerant left would actually like us to die and yet we wish no wrong or no harm on any other person if you're a Christian you're not looking for anybody's harm we're not looking to to destroy them we're simply trying to preach the truth and bring them to an understanding of it but that's not enough for a land where Satan is the God of the country. Our thoughts are too much for the world. Our lifestyles are too much. Our worship is intolerable. There is nothing short of abandoning, abandoning our faith in Jesus Christ and actively working for darkness over light that would appease the world. There's nowhere to go. We can't, we can't live peacefully in the world as the apostles would find out and believe in Jesus Christ the apostles lived in a less than tolerant world in a less tolerant world than our own how did they do that you know I've talked about how brutal the Romans were and that the Jews were hand in glove with them trying to put them down how did the apostles do this with the grace they did well for one thing they walked and talked with Jesus the apostles actually got to sit down and have dinner with him something rubbed off I, I mean if you follow the, the story of the gospels and, and the apostles don't get it and the apostles don't get it and the apostles don't get it and they don't understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand who Jesus is, and finally, they get it. Finally, they get it. They got it before Jesus' own brothers got it, frankly. But they walked with Jesus, they talked with him, they ate with him. They saw the miracles that were performed. Uh, The apostle Paul, on the other hand, did not. But Jesus appeared specially to him and instructed him personally in preparation for his special ministry. But still, how did they do it? How did they go about their lives being reviled and persecuted, beaten, and then finally martyred? The writings of one apostle says a lot, and no, it wasn't Paul, who also talked a lot about the difficulties he went through. But it's not Paul that I'm going to quote here, though I could. What I'm going to share is from that headstrong, impetuous, sword-wielding apostle, probably the poster boy for the attitude that the leaders in Jerusalem had about the unwashed, uncouth disciples from Galilee. And so we're talking about Peter here. The Peter who is trying to convert while he's being accused, but convert the Sanhedrin and the leader of the Jews, that Peter, the Peter who ran away from and denied Christ three times, that Peter who's now standing firmly when he's arrested in front of the Sanhedrin, that very man that this first half of Acts is about, 
writing near the end of his life, Peter has these words for Christians today. And looking it up, it, uh, the book of First Peter was written between 60 and 68 AD because Peter was crucified in 68 AD. And we know that he arrived in Rome about the year 60. And First Peter doesn't say that he's in Rome. It says he's in Babylon, okay? But he wasn't in Syria. It was a pet name for the worst place in the world, which was Rome. It was the Babylon for Christians. It was, anyway, in 1 Peter 2.19, he writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? There is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The thoughts of unjust suffering was much on his mind in those last days of his life. Remember, if he was roughly the age of Jesus at this point, he's 60 or closing in on it. He's now had a long life, but he knows what suffering is. Later in his writings... In what we know as 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10, he writes, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his eyes are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with a gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And just a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Doesn't hardly sound like the man who took up a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems to me he might have learned a little bit in his life. So how did Peter do at all of this as he faced death in Rome? When I got home from work on Tuesday, the talk turned to women's Bible study and Lauren piped up, Mommy cried again. Okay, so I had to say, what did Mommy cry about this time? It was about Peter in his final days in Rome. From Paul, we know that some of the apostles took their wives on their missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians 9. Is it 3? I'm, I'm going to dazzle you with my uh, Bible memory work, but I just looked it up just before the service to make sure where we were. And it says, are we not able, are we not allowed to take believing wives with us? He's talking about himself and Barnabas. Are we not allowed to take believing wives with us as do the rest of the apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, meaning Peter? And so we know, though the Catholics will deny it, that Peter took a believing wife with him. In fact, she was with his ministry from the days of his youth. And Aaron had pointed out, she said, we don't know her name, so of course I had to go looking for it. And I'm here to tell you we don't know her name. In some non-scriptural sources, there are several names given her for, for her, so I didn't even bother looking them up. We do not know her name. It's not important. But she was, as Paul called it, a believing wife who was in Peter's ministry. Probably, no, I don't know probably from the days of his youth, walking with Jesus until A.D. 68. Tradition, and I don't discount tradition and you know that, it's not scripture, but tradition is basically secular history. Uh, Even if it's church history, it's not in, in the scripture. But we have Peter's mode of execution only from tradition also it's not in the Bible we believe him to have been crucified upside down but tradition 
says that Peter's faithful wife was executed before he was. And as she was led away, he called to the help. The helper through his long life. And as she's led away to be killed, he says, remember the Lord. This then is the testimony of the apostles for us in troubled times. Remember the Lord. And if the days do get dark and trouble comes upon this country, the thing we do, and the only thing we need to know is what Peter said to his wife. Remember the Lord. Let's close in prayer.